You're listening to a 3CR podcast created in the studios of independent community radio station 3CR in Melbourne, Australia. For more information, go to allthews.3cr.org.au. Housing for the Aged Action Group, Haig for short, a housing group for older people run by old people. Present Raise the Roof! We advocate for secure, affordable and appropriate housing. So listen up on the second and fourth Wednesday of the month at 5.30pm on 3CR 855 on your AM dial. Okay, welcome to another edition of Raise the Roof, Housing for the Age Action Group's fortnightly radio show about all things relating to older people and housing issues. I'm, my name's Fiona and I'm joined today by, with Shane. Where, how are you going, Shane? Great. We're actually recording this episode from inside a pair of blanket forts in our own, in our own homes. This is what COVID-19 has reduced us to. Uh, we were told by 3CR that the audio on the last episode was a bit, a bit off. Uh, and they recommended softer surfaces. So we are literally wrapped in blankets right now. Not so bad in the Melbourne weather. Melbourne winter, I mean. But uh, yes, welcome <laughs> to the show from my dark cave. It's an interesting new concept. I had to make the cat get off the bed and he wasn't oh, very no. happy. Yep. Oh, jeez. I know, sacrifices. Um, so today's episode is, we're going to be talking a little bit about public housing. Um, and it coincides with the... Um, with the sad news this week of the passing of Jack Mundy, um, who was a long time union activist um, and did a lot of great things for um, things like the Green Bands in Sydney and was a really great public housing advocate. Um, Shane, you had some things to say about Jack, didn't you? I mean, I guess I just wanted to pay our respects. He was a great, uh, great activist, great union leader. Um, the, the history of the Green Bands, if people aren't familiar, is, is really incredible story of the way that people, and especially workers, banded together to protect not only their wages and conditions, but also um, both the, the built and natural environment. Some of the um, historic buildings in Sydney wouldn't exist now if the uh, BLF in the 70s hadn't said, we're not going to, you know, we're not going to use our, our labour and our time to tear down um, buildings that the community needs. And the same thing for the environment. Um, if people are interested, there's a really fantastic documentary about that era called Rock and the Foundations um, that you can probably find online without too much trouble. Uh, maybe we'll try and tee up a, a screening for it whenever our members are actually allowed to convene in public again. Yeah, that'll be exciting. Um, but in the meantime, it's timely to be talking about public housing because... Um, we have had a few kind of um, announcements made in the last couple of weeks from uh, the community sector and from the community housing sector calling for an increase to public housing as an economic stimulus response to the economic downturn that people are anticipating in this closing uh, time. So we're, we're recording this on Monday and Crikey was reporting this morning that Anthony Albanese will be making a speech today uh, where he will call for social housing um, as a form of stimulus, amongst other things, as a response to the pandemic. I guess in that context, we're kind of reminded of the last big um, package of social housing construction, which came with the Rudd government stimulus package for the global financial crisis, mm -hmm. which included a, a tremendous amount of money um, for affordable housing. But unfortunately, 
uh, most of that money went to the private sector, went in, in particular to, you know, so-called affordable housing that was in the range of 80% of market rent, which uh, is, is not much help if you're on, uh, you know, minimum wage, on a, on a low income, on, on benefits or something like that. So whatever form of social housing construction he calls for today or in the near future, um, we'd really like to see that that actually be public housing in public hands, uh, which, you know, again, as we've said so many times, is the best form of housing for older people. And also timely this week was um, some research that came out from RMIT about looking at what land we actually have here in Victoria that could be made available for public housing. Um, and I've got an interview coming up with Liam from the Centre for Urban Research at RMIT, who they released their um, interim report a little bit early because they were anticipating that there would be some announcements around economic stimulus. We will go to that interview shortly, but one of the points that Leah makes um, is that it shouldn't just be a response to crises where public housing is built, but it should be happening all the time as a regular part of what um, the state and the federal government invest in, just like they invest in public, house, um, public schools, public libraries, um, public hospitals. So yeah, we'll go to that interview shortly. But before we do, Shane, you had some comments to make about how the government's response to COVID is working for older renters. Um, do you have an update for us this fortnight? Um, I'm quite surprised you say that I had some comments about that. Um, <laughs> I reckon we should hear the interview and maybe we'll have some comments after. Okay, sure. We'll go into the interview now. So I'm joined today by Liam Davis, um, who is a researcher at RMIT. How are you going today, Liam? Very well. Thanks for having me. No worries. I'm wondering if you can tell us a little bit about the Centre for Urban Research and what sort of things you look into. Uh, so it's a research centre within RMIT, within the School of Global Urban and Social Studies. And we look at all types of um, environments and factors to do with the built environment, cities and urban regions. Okay. Um, so you've recently put out a report into the um, sale of public land by the state government. Would you be able to tell us a little bit about your findings and um, the implications for public housing? Sure. So we've been looking at government land sales from 2000 until 2018. And this is land that has been owned by government that's been deemed surplus to requirement. And in total, over 500 sites have been sold within metropolitan Melbourne and almost 600 hectares of land. And we've been trying to identify what parcels of these could have been used for housing. And around 80% of it is residential or residential suitable land. And from our analysis, as you said, is still interim, we estimate that about 11,000 dwellings could have been built on this land. And our argument is that, that building those dwellings as public housing would have been a much better use for this land than selling it into the market. So what did the state government do with that land? It's all been sold. So to this do... is land that has been deemed surplus to requirement and then sold on the free market. To anybody, any developer can purchase that land. Um, yeah. Yeah. Exactly. So some of the land has been around, um, say, parcels of land that have been acquired for projects such as the East West Link that are no longer needed. And those are sold the same as anyone else would sell land. So on realestate.com.au, you can find surplus government land. Wow. So 
is there any kind of restrictions? Do they have any requirements about selling it? They just open it up to anyone and then that can be redeveloped in according to local laws, I guess. But other than that, there's no restrictions about what that's used for. It doesn't have to be in the public interest. No. So to be deemed surplus land, it has to go through a process of the department that owns it has to see whether it needs it in future. And then it offers it to a right of first refusal to all other government departments who then have to say, no, we don't want that. And after that process has been exhausted, then it's sold at market rates. One of the problems is that much of this land could be used for public housing, but because the director of housing doesn't have adequate capital grants to build housing, they can't reserve that land. Whereas if they were properly funded to be able to have an ongoing construction program, as they were in previous decades, they'd be able to say, we can use that land, we can build housing on it, we'll purchase it from the department at fair value for social housing. So in terms of the cost of building public housing, or even community housing providers would have to ordinarily um, buy that land beforehand. And, and I would suggest that the biggest cost or one of the biggest costs in building housing is the cost of the land. Is that, is that right? So how much money could they save by already owning the land? Have you done those figures? Uh, so I've done a little bit of work on this earlier for an for a honours thesis project. And I found that it's not just the cost of land, it's also the associated costs. So the cost of land is estimated to be about 15% of development, but when you add in other things like profit, that's when you have to buy something off the private market and other development charges, they can add up. And public housing delivered on state-owned land costs under $300,000 per dwelling, and that dwelling in a market environment would probably be about $550,000. So it's a significant saving for the state to build its own dwellings on its own land than to rely on a private market. So over the last eight years, you mentioned there's been around 600 hectares sold off. Is, that, is there anything coming up that we should be concerned about in terms of other pieces of land that might be imminently sold? Yeah, so it's over 18 years, sorry, not eight. Oh, but, um, 18, yes. yep, sorry. Um, yeah, so there's currently the Department of Treasury and Finance have an exhaustive list of land that they're preparing to sell on their website. And we've gone through that and identified all of the sites within Metro Melbourne and then identified within that subset the housing sites that could be used for housing. And there's about 24 hectares of land across <coughs> metropolitan Melbourne. And even at a very low density of only 17 dwellings per hectare, that would be able to build well over 400 houses. Yeah, okay. Just what they're looking at selling at this moment. Wow. So instead of selling it off, they could be, um, they could be immediately starting to build public housing. Um, have you done any work on looking at the value of um, economic stimulus in this COVID pandemic time um, to be able to do those sorts of things? Because I know that during the global financial crisis, one of the ways that Australia got through it was investing in public works like this and post-war, I believe, as well. Um, have you at the Institute there looked at any of that to see if it is value for money? Well, so that's why we've released this media release um, early before we've completed the study, because we think that especially in light of these 24 hectares of land being sold, this could be used as a shovel ready, so they say, project to build public housing, because it is an incredibly effective stimulus measure. 
especially if you don't support the broader construction industry just by giving subsidies, but just by getting engaging the private construction sector, all of the money towards public housing would all flow into the pockets of builders, tradies, and other construction firms because no money would need to be spent on land. So it's incredibly efficient at targeting investment towards the construction sector. And the construction sector, we think, is going to be hit quite hard by this downturn as we're seeing lower levels of net migration and we're seeing tightening budgets in households. We think that there's probably going to be at least a, um, a slowing of the accelerated building we've been seeing over the past few years. So there's um, these pockets of land that you've mentioned, they're all in city of Melbourne, or Melbourne um, district and relatively connected in terms of services? Uh, so they're all in metropolitan Melbourne. Some of them are in a bit of the outer eastern suburbs, but a lot of them are primary school sites. So typically primary school sites will be surrounded by other residential areas and have other closed amenity to them. So we feel that all of them would be needed. But to be perfectly honest, we have such a shortage of public housing in this city, in this state, that it doesn't really matter where you build it now. It's needed basically everywhere. Yeah. And what what are you what do you think the barriers are for government in terms of why it seems like such a no-brainer to be building public housing? We have older people coming to our service every day who are in extreme amounts of rental stress who are paying so much money in private rental and are struggling. The virus has really brought it into very obvious, sharp relief about how important housing is. We need economic stimulus. All of these factors together seem obvious. What do you think it is that the government is not wanting to do? Why don't they want to take that step? That's a really big question. Um, <laughs> I don't think there's any one reason. I think that what's happened is that we've seen a, a reframing of public housing towards a last resort welfare housing. And this is part of a process termed residualization, which has really been occurring since the mid nineties. And what's happened is the system just hasn't grown at all since the late 1990s. We still have the same amount of public housing in 2020 as we did in 1998. <clears throat> And it's not one government, it's every state government. And it's also an Australian-wide problem. And what that meant is that governments just aren't used to that capital investment in social housing. <clears throat> so we see things like stimulus packages come up around economic crises, such as the GFC, where billions was poured into social housing, but that's over a very short time span. What we haven't seen is those long-term long vision construction programs that we saw in the post-war period, such as Commonwealth State Housing Agreement, which was in force for about 50 years. <clears throat> and that's what I think we really need to wrap our head around is that public housing isn't something that you build when you have a crisis. Public housing is something you need to continually invest in, like the public school system, like the public health system, like public libraries. These need to be continually built as society and the community grows. Yeah. Most of the public housing in this city isn't in the high-rise towers. We think of the high-rise towers as public housing, but that makes up about 16% of Victoria's public housing, maybe a bit less. Most are suburban houses that people just don't know are there. And that's the type of public housing we really need is public housing that's not noticeable. It's invisible because it's just homes 
with families and people living in them getting by. And that's where the real need is. As you said, over 55s is the biggest cohort of people at risk of experiencing homelessness entering into the system. And all of them are being bumped onto this priority one waiting list. But the priority one waiting list is just expanding mammothly. So they implemented a priority one waiting list in 1998 as part of reforms to the Commonwealth State Housing Agreement. And at the time, the wait when you were priority one in housing was about two months. Mm. But because the public housing system hasn't grown and everyone is now basically jammed into the priority one waiting list, the waiting time is now blown out to 12 months. Mm. So people are now waiting six times longer. And it's not as if people are waiting 12 months and they're already in housing. These are already people deemed either homeless through having no home or being in overcrowded conditions or at risk, extreme risk of homelessness. And I don't see how that situation is going to get any better with unemployment rates that we haven't seen since the depression and a welfare system that temporarily has been boosted massively. But what happens when those supports wind back? Mm -hmm. Yeah. And then, like you say, if the stigma dissipates <clears throat> post the housing being built, then that's really no excuse, is it? Like if local government's nervous about it or if, state government or, or community housing providers are nervous about the stigma, then like you say, as soon as people realise that ordinary people going about their lives in public housing all over the place now, not necessarily in the high rises, um, it should be fine. There should be no reason. Yeah. And the stigma really does dissipate. So I've spoken to politicians and people in housing associations and the stigma is always there when you try to propose something, but the moment it's built and they move in, people realise that they're just normal people and the stigma disappears. And that's one of the really interesting things of having Minister Wynne as both the housing minister and the planning minister. So to try to remove or appease some of that community opposition, there's actually special development controls over all of the public housing renewal program sites which gives much stronger ministerial oversight. But you also see housing associations try to build their <clears throat> developments as part of the local community. It's far more than a commercial developer would. So a great example of this is the um, Chadston Ashwood Gatewood Gateway project, which was built in the post GFC stimulus support period by um, <clears throat> Port Phillip Housing Association now housing first and it's got a really great place-based design element to it that it is a place for the local community to go and like all community or public housing developments that got a little bit of pushback at first but now it's seen very much as part of the community it's seen as adding to that broader community and that's the type of development we'd really like to see yeah. So you mentioned that the report that you've released is an interim report that you're basically, you know, taking advantage of the, the situation we're in now with the COVID crisis. Um, when is your larger report coming out? Do you have a timeline on that? Um, we hope to have something out by the end of the year. And in that, we hope to have a, a, a better pinpoint of the exact location of some of these sites. Some of these sites are very hard to locate because they aren't actually addressed as their crown allotment numbers. So they're incredibly large parcels. 
that are crown allotments, but the subdivision process makes it very hard to find out where they are. And we, we're going through the process of trying to pinpoint them and trying to make much more accurate estimations of how that land could be used. And we aim on releasing that near the end of the year. And then you're hoping to be able to use, or for other community organisations like ourselves to be able to use that as an advocacy tool. I'm assuming um, that's kind of what you're hoping for, is that correct or, yeah? Yeah, I mean, we're trying to highlight that there is this massive opportunity that for the state government to use assets that it already has, that it's already purchased for the public good to reuse them for another public good rather than sell them and try to give some figures to highlight how much could be provided by this, just to put in context what is being lost, what the opportunity cost of these sales are. Yeah, so if people were interested in finding out more, um, I guess, reading your recent media release, but also keeping an eye out for the report when it comes out, where mm -hmm. can they go for further information? Uh, so just Google RMIT Centre for Urban Research. Yep. And we'll keep things updated on there. And I'm sure we'll send you a copy of the report when it's released and I can come have another chat. Yeah, that'd be great. Um, we'll put those um, website details on the show notes for 3CR. So any listener can have a look at that as well if they want for more information. Is there any other things that you'd like to say before we wrap it up? Just, I, I guess part of it is that Richard Wynn has come out in response to this to say that they are building a thousand public housing dwellings and they're also renewing their estates. And I like to say that's a very positive move that the government is actually finally starting to increase public housing stock and that's very welcome. And I would encourage them to do more because as the housing sector is growing, the need is growing and a thousand is a good start, but we really need to be looking at a thousand a year. Yeah, it's a long way to go, but it's, it's a good start anyway. Thanks again, Liam, for your time. Um, and we'll get in touch again at the end of the year when your research is complete. Congratulations on it. Thanks for having me. Thank you. Recent recording from each show or 3cr.org.au forward slash streaming to listen live. Okay, so that was Liam from um, RMIT. And you're listening to 3CR, that's 855 on the AM dial. And also you can listen to digital streaming on 3cr.org.au. So now, Shane, tell us, what's yeah. the latest? What's been going on? Well, COVID? So, I mean, we, we heard from Liam about how badly the Victorian government, or successive Victorian governments, I guess, have kind of failed in terms of public housing. But let's just talk a little bit about how badly the, the current Victorian government right now is failing when it comes to renters in the context of COVID-19. We've seen, a, I think it's fair to say, a pretty disastrous um, mishmash from the government. Um, we, people might have seen the news that the Victorian government rushed through emergency rental laws in which they accidentally prevented month-to-month -month tenants from giving notice to leave their houses. Um, apparently, that was just a drafting error. They just accidentally included that in the law. Um, and that's gotten a fair bit of attention from the media. While that, while that was a pretty massive mistake, um, it seems to have drawn a lot of attention away from the more central failure of the new laws, which isn't a mistake, but is the, the way they're actually designed. And what we've seen is Daniel Andrews coming out and talking about an eviction moratorium, following on from Scott Morrison talking about an eviction moratorium. 
But what we get in these laws isn't, isn't actually any kind of eviction moratorium, but a new system for evicting people. The, the principle that we should be working with that there, there should be no evictions into a pandemic or that evictions in a pandemic should be a, a matter of last resort and a matter that's weighed very seriously against the public health benefits um, of people being able to stay in place and the public health risks of evicted people or people facing eviction being forced out in public, um, out of social distancing, into, you know, into the streets, into the queues for housing assistance, into you know, real estate agents' offices and whatnot. It's just a, a garbage response from the Victorian government, just deeply disappointing. The, uh, the system they're setting up to help people negotiate rent reductions with their landlords, I mean, hopefully that will benefit a, a significant number of people, but, the, uh, but we, you know, we face the problem again that tenants and landlords don't get to bargain as equal parties. Um, you know, landlords are going to be represented by agents in these negotiations overwhelmingly, and it's still unclear whether tenants will be able to be represented in most cases um, by the, their own representatives, tenant advocates, whether that's HAG or different organisations. The biggest concern, the new, the new thing to be stressed about, I guess, with the news over the weekend that the federal Liberal government is considering winding back job seeker and job keeper payments as soon as July is that people have negotiated rent reductions in good faith based on, um, you know, their reduced incomes that they expected to maintain for uh, until they could find new work. Now we're looking at a situation where people may have negotiated rent reductions um, that they won't be able to afford when their rent drops back to the normal level of Centrelink payments or something like that. Um, yeah. So that's my rant. Is that enough? Yeah, so that, that's, en that's enough. Hell? I mean, we're pretty, it's pretty, yeah, it's a pretty concerning. And I think um, like we've all been saying for a while, a lot of older renters do not get those bonuses anyway. Um, because their income hasn't been reduced necessarily over this pandemic. Um, but it does mean that older renters are still in the unenviable state of being stuck in private rental, paying really high amounts of rent, which is why, as we've been saying, we need more options like public housing. Okay, so yeah. that's, prob that's probably all we've got time for today. But before we go, I just wanted to quickly plug that we have our general meeting coming up um, next Thursday for HAG members. This will be the first time where we're trialing a Zoom online meeting. Um, so it is gonna be something different for us and something different for HAG members. Um, we really wanna give it a go because we really wanna have people stay connected during this time. So if you are listening and you're a HAG member or a supporter and you'd like to join, but you're unfamiliar with the technology, maybe you don't have um, a computer or an iPad or a phone that you can use, give us a call at, on the office number um, and we will talk you through what you need to do. Luckily, you can just call using a landline. Um, you won't be able to see our faces, but you'll be able to hear the proceedings. Um, so we're hoping it will be somewhat accessible. Um, and maybe some people that can't ordinarily attend because they live in the country or um, find it difficult to get into the city may be able to attend for the first time. So yeah, that's next Thursday at 11 o'clock. Um, and yeah, give us a call on the office number, which is, Shane, what's the office number? Don't ask me to remember it. I can't remember it. <laughs> it's a classic. 9654-7389. That's the uh, one. 1300 765 178. 
Um, those numbers, not just if you want to come to the general meeting, although we'd love to hear from you, but also if you're an older person in Victoria with any kind of housing problem, renting problem, um, need some advice about negotiating a rent reduction, whatever it is, uh, we'd be very happy to hear from you. So those numbers again, 9654 7389 and 1300 765 178. Um, you can also find us on Facebook, on Twitter, on all of that jizz jazz, whatnot. What am I even talking about now? On Come the find website, us on social media. On the website too, oldertenants.org.au. Love it. All right, sweet. That's it, all we got time for. So thanks again for listening and we'll see you again shortly. See you later. Bye.